everybody. Welcome back. Today, I have Professor Guillaume Bogieris on to talk about uh, something very fascinating. So he is a assistant professor of political science and philosophy at the University of Western Alabama. West Alabama. West Alabama, sorry. And um, I don't know my American schools very well. And um, so like a few weeks ago, I was at a conference and I heard Guillaume give a very fascinating talk. It kind of riled people. It brought some interesting reactions. So I thought, why don't uh, why don't we do a show on it? So how's it going, Guillaume? It's doing great. How are you? I'm great. It's very nice out today. So it's really nice. So, <laughs> so you you have this paper, you have two papers on, and you're, you're working on this topic about uh, a theory of migration. And what I thought was really interesting about it is that typically when we look at debates about migration, we look about, we look at, you know, open borders or like, what obligations the receiving country has towards migrants and you're kind of taking a very different angle and looking at what obligations migrants have towards the countries that they're leaving so i think maybe first you want to start off recapping your argument uh to the audience and yeah i'm sure everyone would be really interested to hear it sure um so what's happening is that this the whole impetus for this outside of it was originally a grad school paper but that's not really important the is that um you know conservatives sometimes very clumsily i think uh articulate this position of migrant obligations and they have difficulty in fact uh articulating this in a manner that doesn't end up uh like going to a problematic in fact place but i do think that there's they're on something uh, when it comes to the idea of like migrant obligation and uh, and that thing is about how we interact with the places that make us us, you know, and our identities are multi-layered things that are, you know, like complex and overlapping. But generally speaking, at least in the political theory world, and I think in a less and a more in a less precise way, but similarly important way in the regular world, uh, you know, people value who they are and we take these things to be intrinsic moral goods. Uh, and I think probably the most powerful case for this uh, and most famous in uh, Canadian political theory is by Will Kimlicka. Uh, and, um, and so, uh, and I was thinking along those lines of, like if those are identities are intrinsic moral goods, you know, like, and uh, it means that, you know, all the things that contribute to making us us, you know, like the, not the least of which is a, you know, a healthy sort of like safe environment uh, where you can grow and flourish also have to be valuable. And the maintenance of that is something that's valuable, but a maintenance that's more precise than just a large state framework, you know, saying that you're safe and, that goes through the continued existence of the community that made you, you, you know, like, and, uh, and that community is often, and when we think about large communities, even, uh, you know, uh, minority majority communities like Quebecers in Canada, for example, uh, that's not really 
necessarily a problem, although Quebecers are extremely paranoid about the dilution of their identities, right? Like, and that's sort of like funny to me because I'm like, I'm, I'm sort of like half of one. And, the, and I didn't really realize this before I like exited my parents' house, you know, like to go to school and things like this, but because like in my own mind, I was like definitely part of that group and like the, but, I, and, but, uh, what I but what I wanted to say before I made this aside that broke my own concentration is that <clears throat> uh, so these places are valuable and they deserve to be sort of like maintained to some degree and that's not to say that we have an objective right to sort of like the those communities existing and like never changing right like I'm not but there is a sense in which you know the maintenance of those communities and what they mean for those people uh is important. And so if you leave, right, maybe you have an obligation, like you're exercising your right of free movement of self-determination, right? But you may have to pay some service to the right of those who, who ex express their self-determination by not taking advantage of free movement, by staying put in a sense. And, and when we think about this in terms of, you know, large majority minority communities, it, it's not such a threat because of the numbers, but when we think about more vulnerable communities, smaller communities, right, where the loss of one member in terms of like human capital can be dramatic, right, because you lose like in the in the paper that got published, right, I talk about like losing, you lose not only like a neighbor, right, you lose, you me, you lose like a co-advocate uh, for the voice of your community and things like this, and so that loss might be, it might be like a a real loss of human capital. And before that agency, that political power is replaced with another person, right? That has fully developed political agency. It may take a lot of time, right? It takes time to have and grow children that will, and it, uh, which is the most, the simplest expression of this, but it can also come through like, you know, you know, welcoming of other people that get to share your values and things like this. But it, even if you if we say, well, we welcome immigrants that share our values and sort of like to some degree assimilate and so on, it's still not an instantaneous process, you know, like it's not, I mean, like you lived in Quebec for some time, right? Like, and I'm sure that you had some Quebecer friends, but I'm not sure that you would think of yourself as someone that like fully embraced their values and like ready to go, you know, like, and then, and, and just like go and, you know, manifest with them when the federal government is like infringing on their rights and things. Right. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and that might be for like for a variety of reasons, but like a very simple, the simplest expression of that reason is that like you're you're an outgroup member and like and you don't feel as compelled to do this as the people like my friends, for example, or my friends' parents who feel these things like very dearly. It's very close to their hearts, you know. Like and so that was what got me thinking about this. And I think that this relationship of justice, as I call it, is real. Like and. I think that we have to pay attention to it, like morally, right? But one thing that I want to do with that project is to think about it in a way that avoids that trap that I was talking about, the clumsy trap of obligation that ends up just being like simply racist and xenophobic, right? There's, I want to think about a way where we can, you know, do justice to both the desire to stay and what it represents for those who desire to stay, but also make that compatible with what I think is an inalienable right to free movement because of, you know, self-determination and how morally important that is. Um, 
And in the paper, you know, like I developed this with talking about the debt of parentage and obligation and how we should treat our communities. And I come to the conclusion that the best way to do this is to, you know, enshrine in the policy a way to preserve that power. Uh, meaning that we should, I think, like it would be a good idea to give some voting rights in absentia to those who exist so that their communities are at the very least not diminished politically. And that lack of, of political dilution can be great power, right? If you maintain the ability to vote in local elections, for example, which matter a lot, uh, while you're away, then maybe your physical absence will be felt, but your political absence may not be felt. And that can you know, that can have a tremendous influence on the, you know, the direction that your community takes and so on. It can really affect their survival, you know, like meaningfully. And then that led to another question, which is how, you know, we got to talk about this and why you invited me here, which is what do we do with problematic states who are authoritarian and illiberal, given the fact that they make, you know, like their, uh, their, peoples who they are as well, right? Like my grandparents are Romanian, they fled the Ceausescu regime, but being a Romanian was important to them, you know, like, and uh, <clears throat> my godfather and godmother were still, uh, like uh, separately a, a Lebanese man and a Romanian woman who came from very different countries who had complex relationships with those countries, you know, like, and, uh, and it made them themselves, but it, it's, it was difficult to look at these governments, or it's difficult to look at these governments now and say like, well, you have a debt to it, you know, like a debt that is linked to the fact that it helped you become you. And this is now the puzzle that I'm trying to sort of like disentangle um, in this new paper, which is a draft. Uh, and so it's not fully formed, but I'm struggling with it every day. I was doing that, in fact, just minutes before we logged on, I was <laughs> working on it. So those thoughts are, they're, they're taking shape, but this is the puzzle, you know, that I'm, that I'm trying to to work on presently that led to this conversation. Yeah, and, and that's really fascinating. I, I, I'm i reminded a little bit, there's a, a part in, in the paper where you compare, um, you know, if somebody's uh, leaving when, the, when conflict happens, it's akin to the capriciousness of an unserious partner who threatens to term, terminate the relationship at the first sign of things not going their way. Um, that was kind of a fun example, but it reminded me of a lot of the sort of rhetoric that was happening um, during the Syrian migrant crisis. There were a lot of conservatives against the, like against admitting refugees saying, well, why don't they, like, why are there men, like, military-age men fleeing? Shouldn't they stay and fight for their country? And it kind of makes me think, like, where the lines of solidarity are. Like, is it, um, there seems to be a sort of working intent or a sort of tacit alliance between the, like, arguments from conservatives who don't want more, like, an influx of refugees, but yeah. also from a nationalist perspective uh, from the home country, which is saying like, no, you need to stay and fight for your community as well. Um, even though the motivating factor for those two are completely different. Yes. And and so that that's very fascinating to me because it seems like in the immigration debate, there's a lot of different kinds of alliances that are unexpected mm -hmm. or at least agreements among people that are unexpected. Like I remember in the open borders debate, you know, you have 
uh, leftists who are very sympathetic towards immigrants, but you also have uh, this more libertarian perspective of wanting like a free flow of labor as well. So what like a, a criticism that I would anticipate is saying like, well, do you fear that your soundings too similar to like nationalistic conservatives who like are basically telling people to stay in a dangerous situation actually oh i'm sorry the, oh, yeah. uh, yes i do i, I do and uh, one thing the criticism that came from the first piece and still does right and uh this is a criticism that uh professor turkler isixel brought while we were having this uh our GCS conversation is that like, well, how do we weigh different identities? And, uh, and so, and how do we deal with the more problematic ones and the problematic allies that this kind of rhetoric attracts? Like, and, uh, and I think that the way out of this conundrum is to do something which uh, is, is in fact, that the internet is not a, a is not great at doing, but approaching these problems with nuance, uh, and it, I really think that it's possible for us to look and to say simultaneously, your identity and yourself, as it relates to your cultural existence, are valuable things that are intrinsic moral goods, and they do imply some sort of obligation. What that does not mean is that it implies any obligation, right? Or the terms of this obligation, the duty that it implies has to be set by the debtor, you know? Like, so in the case of your Syrian refugee crisis, right? Like, and um, I don't think that the, I don't think it's a good idea to set the boundaries or to sort of like hash out the terms of that, uh, of that debt like from the perspective of the debtor and like and I think it's a very in fact it's a it's a clumsy thing to do morally and it will always end up right where we're going to have a type of rhetoric where the state is going to think in the interest of the state and then it opens a door to a sort of Pandora's box of terrible things like stay and go in the army you know like get shot and like or defend all of these terrible things uh, when I was writing the original piece right people were like so are you defending and this is the, I was having this conversation with Professor Isixel as well as like, so I, one of the great loves of my life is black metal. Like I, I, I live and breathe it. I've been a black metal head for longer. I've been a political theorist and I still am. And this is something that causes me no small amount of struggle because it is a place where you have a lot of like really people that I don't want to be associated with as a, as a professor and a, and like in an intellectual as well, you know, like, and uh, and when you mix that with like Quebec nationalism, it just becomes like a very ugly thing sometimes. Like, and and uh, and so I think about it a lot because these people are in my face all the time, every time that I listen to music or that I look at something on the internet, right? Like, and I was thinking about like, and I didn't want these people to look at me and to think that I'm like, they're, you know, that we're like sort of like strange bedfellows on the same, you know, on the same boat, like going in the same direction. And to them to think like, oh, Guillaume definitely is one of us. He's like covertly doing, you know, like the work of defending what we think is right, which I'm not at all. And like, and that was definitely sort of a danger. And like, and where we have to think here, and it is like to say like, well, I'm not defending anybody's right 
to have any identity, right? Like, and we can really approach this problem with nuance by saying like, well, if your self-expression is like predicated on the inability of others, like, and I think you wrote a piece about that a long time ago that I read uh, and uh, that, and it made that same point, right? The, uh, is that like, well, if your identity is predicated on others not being able to express that same right that we can't say, like, it's not, it, we could say like, well, no, you, that doesn't work, right? You're breaking the cycle. Uh, and so, and so I'm not defending any, anybody's right to have like a little like Quebec Nazi enclave, you know, where they're just like, just like running around and having their own like little identities. But there is a risk that this argument is sort of like co-opted by these people. But I think that we get out of it by approaching these things in a sort of like case by case manner. And uh, and like, and the truth is that like we must, now that's ill-suited to the kind of moral argument that we make policy on. I know this like uh, from being a political scientist, but the problem is that I think we just, we must, like we can't just, uh, we can't just like look at this and they say, even by the, the solution that I identify in the first paper, right? Like in the, in the absentee of voting rights, I know that it's imperfect. It's a sort of like clumsy way to address a complex problems. But to be honest with you, that's the one I had in mind when I wrote the paper. And so like, and I could make a decent case for it. And I didn't want the solution to be money. And the case that I make in the paper for it is that if you make it taxation, then you're in fact, the, uh, the uh, the solution the thing that gives political like the the tool that can help survival does not go into the hands of the people that need it it goes into the hands of the centralized government who may not have the interests of your community at heart right like and so i hope that answers your question sort of a long-winded way to make my case yeah well like something i i think about um and you kind of do talk about this in in the paper about how like the argument might not apply to authoritarian states. And um, there's kind of a problem though in like distinguishing what states are free enough to warrant having an obligation to them. And yeah. it kind of made me think about how like different people will have a different experience with the state in terms of like whether it's free and they might have a different reason for fleeing. So for instance, I mean, even in the context of the Syrian conflict or whatever people want to call it like some people left because of ISIS some people might have left because of the government so like then and, and those two are on different sides so to speak but but another thing is like you know we look at countries like the U.S. that we might consider as like one of the free countries yeah. and then what came to my mind was Asada Shakur who fled the U.S. to Cuba um and I was thinking like, yeah, so that's an example of somebody fleeing an ostensibly like free state for one of the bad guys in <laughs> national politics. Um, and it, it kind of, it, it makes it like hard to conceive of like identity that's formed simply by geographical boundaries because it seems to me like there's a sort of international solidarity that's based on things like class or, or race that mm. would transcend these boundaries. And then that would make the obligations a little bit more muddy or like it might be, make it more difficult to discern what obligations they would have. Does that makes sense? Yeah. 
So I think that the way to think about this is that first, so I see what you're saying and sort of like, a, I see a sort of like two pronged commentary and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that like on the one hand, we have the question of like, to whom do you owe that debt, right? Like, and so who is the recipient of the, the metaphorical, so to speak, repayment of that debt of identity formation, right? And the second question is, what do we do? And this is in the second paper. It wasn't in the draft you read, but it is in the draft that I'm writing now. Is it like, so what do we do for people who live in like liberal democracies, so to speak, but what that are, who belong to communities uh, who for whatever reasons are treated illiberally, right? Like, so I would argue that the black population of the United States, especially in the South where I live, I don't, I would say that they are treated illiberally, right? Like, and so the liberal Americans, both the big L liberal and the small L liberals, they see themselves as treating these people at equals, but in fact, they do not. And it's like very, it's like obvious to anyone who spends more than five minutes there. Uh, even the people who think that this is a non-problematic thing recognize it. Like, and so this is a sort of like pretty clear sign. I think that the problem is that it's a uh, truth. And so on the first thing, the, the question of who that debt is owed to is that uh, I don't think it's owed to the state apparatus who provides what I call the larger framework of identity uh, determination. Like, I think rather it has, it's an in-community thing. Like, and so, you know, that that is not owed to the Quebec government or the Canadian government. It's rather owed to a much smaller political unit. And that's why when I talked about voting rights and absentia, I thought about local voting rights and absentia specifically uh, because those are the ones they make a day-to-day -day difference in your life, right? Like, and then your local uh, voice is weightier. Lo your local vote is way weightier than your federal or provincial one and so on. And so I want to avoid framing uh, or ending up in a place where that debt is owed to the state because I don't think it is. I think the state has some, it, it does do something for us, but that obligation is repaid by way of taxation. Like it provides a framework where we're like, we're safe and so on and so forth. The debt that I want to identify is owed to a much smaller political unit uh, that is much more local. Uh, the second thing, the question of, uh, the question of, of, of what to do, you know, what if you live in a, uh, in a so-called liberal democracy, right? And you're part of a group that's treated liberally. And the question is the one that I think is, I think that's the really interesting implication of the draft of the paper that I'm working on uh, because, because it just thinking about authoritarian states allows us to go, you know, like conceptually to that place, right? Because what matters is your relationship to the state, how they treat you and how that affects obligation. And I have the sort of uh, anticlimactically, I have to tell you that I don't no, but I will tell you this, however. So here's what I think this looks like from my point of view right now. Is that I think that like in those cases, in order to determine if an obligation exists, we have to look at two things, right? Your relative status in the community that you're leaving uh, and your political agency, like so how are you treated? You know, like, are you part of a group that can actually flourish or are you part of a group that cannot? And this is uh, the rhetorical motif that I use in the draft that you read to make that point is Athenian slaves, 
like and the laws in the Corrido are making this distinction between like slaves and children right and they're not the same and like the point that I'm trying to make is that if you are sort of a, like a child citizen then you have a debt but if you're a slave citizen that we can't say that you do because it's it's completely unreasonable to posit that you in fact that you live in an environment in which you can flourish right and so the states are the they're the liberally illiberally treated populations that uh that i i'm trying to think about the second thing is political agency um and so again in the crito there's this thing where we you uh, we know that there's a certain diversity in Athens that allowed people who were even in the sort of the not so well treated groups had some sort of political agency, meaning that they had a channel by which they could influence political decisions that affected their group, right? And so this motif is I'm using to make a point about political agency, right? If you can't, if you don't live in a place in which you have some sort of political right, some sort of like legal avenue, and I'm not talking here about uh, about the ability to, you know, like to erupt in uh, protest or, you know, like uh, sort of like non-state sanctioned way to affect real change because anybody can do that. Like, and so what we, what I think matters morally to create that obligation is that like you need to have a state sanctioned way to affect political change that works. <laughs> like, and so, and I think that if we look that I, that has measurable effects at the very least like and and uh and i think that the example of black populations in the south is particularly ripe for my paper because they are on both counts failing right they're not they're not classifying as populations that do have this debt however right they they are very much invested in their own survival and thriving and so what is the answer here from the perspective of the theory that i'm trying to develop is but I think that here's what we can say. Like we, like we can say that you uh, that there's a that the identity formation happened and that it creates a moral bond. But we, because of the circumstances, we can't say that you have a moral duty to repay it. Like, and I realize that this distinction is like highly theoretical, right? Like it just it exists very abstractedly, but. I do think that it matters, like, because we can say, like, okay, you can be invested in the survival of your community. However, you can absolutely leave, and you, and because of the way that you were treated, you have an absolute moral right to get out of Dodge and to never reinvest yourself in this community again. You don't have to vote. You don't have to come back. You may do it, but we can't expect that of you morally because it, the, you know, the, the kind of the variables that are necessary for that moral obligation to uh, uh, crystallize between you and your community are simply not there. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, no, it does. And and something that that came to my mind is because you 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 are making a distinction between obligation to community versus obligation to government, particularly mm -hmm. when the government's not great. Yeah. I I kind of was thinking of instances where like you might actually still harm a community even if what you are like destroying is the government mm -hmm. uh, when you egg upon exiting. And so what comes to my mind is there's a lot of efforts on the part of say like US intelligence um, 
to kind of weaponize, there's a, there's a new terminology used by Yasha Levine to weaponize immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, so what they, against their, their home country. And so ostensibly this is done in the name of, you know, against the government. But what tends to happen is say you have people who come from like Iran, for example, and they might be, you know, weaponized by the U.S. against the Iranian government when the U.S. is trying to like, uh, say, get out of the JCPOA and then during the Trump regime. Um, and so like, this is ostensibly against the government, but then it ends up harming the population because it ends up like it might lead to something like sanctions that are making ordinary people unable to access food or medicine, whereas the government isn't really impacted by like the ruling classes aren't as impacted by it right and so that to me seems like an obligation like you are actually harming your community your big exit story but it's supposedly under the guise of um being like oh no it's not my community it's my government you know yeah yeah um and so Again, right, I think that the sort of the way that we can think about this is is with nuance, right? Like on the one hand, the first thing is that like there's definitely it's sort of like a moral, morally uncomfortable place that's occupied by the people who are asking, you know, for the who are weaponizing certain identities for the sake of legitimizing certain narratives, right? Like, and so and it's I think that we can we can rest in a place where like the um, it's we can comfortably say that this is sort of like morally difficult to accept uh, and and um, like if you know if the regime is like legitimately or if the enemy right is uh, is like morally repugnant it we don't I don't think that we need right like individual persons and like so this the creating a, the sort of like holy or sort of like celebrated turncoat, right? Like a type of like martyr that turns around and like legitimizes, right? That says like, well, I have the expertise necessary to say from the inside that it is in fact just as bad as as this, as it's being said and so on. This is like a, a tactic where I think that is a sort of like, it, it alerts us already to, uh, to things not being as clear cut uh, as they as they are, you know, and um, the second thing, right, is that indeed, yeah, there's a, there is a harm, right, like the, this, when we think about these identities, right, the thing that I think is like the intrinsically morally valuable thing, right, like they're in the sense, in a sense, they're the very top of a very, like a layered but fragile edifice, right, and the, the base of this is a relatively stable, safe, state right but there are layers and layers and layers and you yourself right like me you particularly like Guillaume Mila we're at the top of these edifices right we exist with the very last story and we're this like tiny thing but in the the all of the levels that are necessary for us to be us right like they're um they depend on one another right and so when you go around and you participate in these efforts right like you're going against the government, but if that bottom layer, right, if that foundation is no longer there, then the, old, the whole edifice like crumbles and we can't reasonably say 
right? Like, well, the Iranian government collapsed, but at least like my tiny enclave of 25 people that I know are like totally good, right? Because they're not the government. Like that's not, that's just not like a morally defensible position. Like anybody that knows what it is to live in any place <laughs> knows that this, this is just getting, you're automatically affected by this, right? Like, and so, and here I would, I would like appeal to the moral agency, right? Of the people who are being used in this way, right? Like, so we have a separate case here of like governments using, taking people in very vulnerable positions and, and like using that vulnerability to make them do or say things that they don't really have a choice to do in order to access a place of safety where they may in fact, right, continue that enterprise of self-realization, which I say is morally, intrinsically, you know, morally invaluable, right? Like, and so, and so, and that's bad. That's just, that's bad. Like if there's, like if, if you, if someone needs something for you very bad and you make them jump through a series of hoops before they can access it and there's always, you know, like I just like the sort of like silly video game model of, of accessing public goods, right? Where you get to the place you are and there's like a character that just pops up out of nowhere and, and says like, actually, you need to do this one thing, you know, like before you actually get there. And then it just never ends, right? Because that's the way that the game is built. Well, that, that sucks. That's, that's bad when you're doing this to real people. It's fun when you're playing Zelda, right? Like, but it's, it's morally wrong when it's happening to a real person or groups of person in life. And the second thing is that like, I would say, well, you know, like you may as an individual, right? Like what I'm trying to do with this enterprise, right? Is to exactly to put these kinds of things in relief, right? Like if you decide to not, uh, if you decide to, to participate in this, right? Like, you know, that some people, what like, some communities are going to cease to exist. They're going to be fragmented. Like, you even in some cases, right? Like the, you're taking risks. And I was like uh, watching this documentary on Netflix because we, like most people during the pandemic, we've just completely exhausted the catalog, right? And there's this documentary about this Russian uh, man who participated in the doping agency. And like at the end, right? There's this, he's in this room, this Russian guy and all of these scientists are like man like that sucks what you did like the athletes are pissed and he's like and he and he turns around to himself and he says like well think about me you know like I've renounced my family and everything but like he is in the United States somewhere in the bungalow and his wife and kids have their passports withdrawn and like and I was like you're not the hero of this story like what you should have done is like absolutely shut up. And like, I was, I remember thinking this when I was like watching the documentary and I was like, how dare you? Like, nobody cares about like pieces of metal, you know, like this is a show that's put on for people's entertainment. There's no absolute value in those performances. We watch them because they're fun and then it's over. And like, they're like actual lives or we're being like completely, you know, like carpet bombed because you were like, I'm going to do this noble thing and expose the fact that like there was one wrestler took like EPO one time. And I was like, I, we all knew it. Like that. What? Why is this? Why is this something that you decided to do? Like, and and so you know, in that case, right? That, that guy, I would argue, is like just terribly. He's not the hero of this story at all. Like, and then 
and not even the slightest in the slightest sense that whatever angle you approach this from, yeah, they try to get the blame on like Putin at the end. And I would argue, you know, that I'm sure that Vladimir Putin is not a morally irreproachable person. But I was like, come on, like this is not the regime didn't make you do this. Like, the, and and uh, <laughs> and so I would say that in those cases, right, like that that guy didn't do what I wish he had done, which is like to turn around and to say like, well, I could have not done this, right? And he didn't even want to emigrate to the United States. He just wanted attention, essentially, is what like gets through. I don't know if you watch the documentary, but like the, and uh, it's Icarus, uh, but, uh, and, and, and anyhow, like, and so I would say, well, if you're in that situation, such as the one that you described, you do really have to weigh those things, right? Like you have to weigh those things from the perspective of your own self-determination, right? You have to take, every the same way that we approach human lives right like you take if your moral self-determination your the development of your identity is an intrinsic moral good then that holds for every other person that you left behind for every person that you're going to meet in your future life and whatever and those are things that you have to take into consideration when you make these types of decision and i understand that it puts pressure on people that may sometimes be vulnerable right like but but I, my very unsatisfying answer to this is that like moral situations are complex and they're muddy. And I don't think that anyone comes out of the other other side, like with a sort of like with the ability to just like completely live well with themselves. But those decisions and exist. And what I really want to argue is that this variable, it's morally relevant. You know, like this is, does that make sense to you? Am I making like sense to you? Like the yeah, so you're saying the variable that's morally relevant is like how your decisions are going to impact the community that you are leaving. Yeah, their ability to self-determine, right? Like the, to continue, you know, like be themselves there while you continue be yourself over here, right? Like right. In, in your absence impacts that. Like, and what I really want to argue is that, yeah, is that this is a morally relevant thing. Like I don't even... I'm not even married to the solution that I propose. In fact, I'm not married to it at all. What I really am invested in, right, is to sort of like making this bit, this part of the moral equation, something that we all collectively recognize is, is relevant. And I really, I really do think it is. I really do. And I think that there's really like a sort of way to make this point in a manner that just doesn't rely on just like pure... Uh, on, on that doesn't end up in places that are like xenophobic, right? Like the, it, it really doesn't, even in the case of like unfortunate expressions of this, you know, like cultural solidarity or love, sometimes Quebecers are very clumsy about making those points, right? Like, but I think that there's something there that, that they're onto something. Like I do think, however, that they're like thoroughly mistaken about the way that we go about defending those things. Like, but a lot of that work, I think, is like about developing a sort of like a, a theory of of these moral variables, right? Of of identity as intrinsically valuable and cultural preservation that just that can, it can live comfortably with those other, you know, moral gains that we've made in migration theory and political theory in the past decade or so. Yeah, and I think you know, I think a lot of times in convers something I've come to realize is like in conversations about um, nationalism or like cultural pride, a lot of times like people who are left-leaning 
tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like they just they're kind of like, and, and it's a very like Western left thing because there's like leftists around, like in other countries who are more patriotic than they are in say like Canada or the U.S. Um, and yeah, I think they kind of tend to underestimate the sort of um, value that people derive from you know having a like cultural preservation or community preservation and you know like I've been saying this like the decline of that plus like the decline of religion is making people just like full of despair and like identity (laughs) and so I totally get that and I think you know it's something that we need to take more seriously especially when we're talking about like that's why I found your presentation really interesting because I was like yeah like this is something that a lot of people tend to just brush aside um when it actually and I think living for my part like living in Quebec for like I lived there for five and a half years it's something that I kind of like noticed as well because it's like there's a very strong uh cultural nationalism that in a way is a response to historical suppression so it kind of makes sense um something that uh, uh, the last thing I wanted to ask about it that I found really interesting in the paper is you talk about Colin Kaepernick and Megan Rapinoe. Yeah, yeah. I so I haven't watched the Russian athlete doping thing, but I I thought the discussion of, of Kaepernick and, and Rapinoe was really relevant or like you know just with the with the times. Um, and you kind of talk about like in one of the sentences you say what the state you you compare this to the credo and you say like what the state does for its members implies that there are acceptable and unacceptable ways of behaving towards it and you kind of talk about the conservative commentators who you know didn't want to say to Kaepernick like you your speech should be suppressed but they didn't want to say that like they still wanted him to kind of stop doing it you know do you want to speak to that a bit yeah oh yeah for sure so that was actually so I remember when that sort of idea so I lived in Texas for five years when I did my PhD and so like I um I made friends with one person in particular but like a bunch of people at the boxing gym where I go to uh it's not a it's not like a sort of like a a masculinity thing I, I have chronic anxiety and I manage it with sports and like so and uh and boxing is the only sport that I like to practice, essentially. I discovered it by chance. And I was very lucky too. And so, but the friends that you make at the boxing gym are very particular kinds of people, especially when that's in the heart of Texas that you make them. And uh, and I, one of them is very dear to me. And he is just like a regular guy. He has a carpet cleaning company. I mean, he's just a completely regular Texan. And he was very invested in those things because he loves sports, right? And we, this idea sort of like struck me because I was having a conversation with him about these people and, and what he thought were like, you know, or what he was sort of like struggling with in terms of what was acceptable ways and unacceptable ways of treating the United States. Um, and Americans are obsessed with this notion of like how the U.S. government should and shouldn't be treated. And it's impossible to live there or to interact with them without being sort of like sucked into this conversation. Right. It's at the same time something that it just like it's beyond reproach and and sort of like worthy of the worst kind of vitriol. And those two things are like superimposed in their minds and it just constantly creates like a. it creates situation like the Kaepernick situation and the Megan Rapinoe 
situation, which like just like breaks everybody's minds every time that it happens because they look at them and they're like, how dare they have so much more than everybody else and like still come around and look in our faces and say that they are, you know, that they don't, that they could have it better, that there's room for improvement, that the United States is, you know, is a place that they're the example, right, of what every American wants to be, like rich, good looking, popular, like, uh, you know, you have the admiration of thousands and it just, so, and what that kind of creates in American public discourse is just like an idea that like, yeah, you can use your free speech, but you shouldn't really use it to criticize the state when you're really, really privileged. And this is also something that we see in, you know, leftist spaces, right? That like a certain kind of privilege, you know, like it precludes you from being able, or at least, you know, you shouldn't be taken as seriously when you make certain criticisms or critiques as other people who don't have the same as you. And yeah, I wrote about that too. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and like, and there's just this whole constellation of discourse is a very sort of like complex and touchy place that is beyond my ex- area of expertise to, uh, to state upon outside of the fact that I think that there's, you know, like competing places where there are people in there who are genuinely worried about the issue. And there are people in there who identify as sort of like of a tool to exercise power and that they're like, and they're like, this is a, and those two factions, they sometimes there's a porosity between them. And it becomes, it becomes very confusing, especially when you hang out a lot on Twitter and like, but which is something that I recommend to no one, as I'm sure you know. And like, and, but the thing about Kaepernick and Rapinoe is that they weren't talking about themselves. You know, like Kaepernick wasn't saying my life is shitty. Rapinoe wasn't saying that her life was shitty. They were saying, hey, while I'm here, you know, like there's this thing that we should really pay attention to, right? Like, and what the, what happens when the conservatives just essentially lost their minds about this? Like, because they think that they're, when they say that the government can suck it, right? I'm sorry, I'm not, uh, well, you can maybe edit this later if the language matters, but like the, um, okay, great. Like the, and so, you know, when they say this, it's completely acceptable for them to say it, but when the others uh, do, then no longer, right? And the question that's at the back of this is, you know, like given what the states do for you, right? Given what the states like is doing in terms of your ability to, you know, to grow and everything, like there is an acceptable and unacceptable way of behaving towards it. And the conservative case here is that like your attitude is, should be one of reverence, right? Like, and that, that you have free speech, but this is a right that's like better like it should, sometimes you listen to them and it's, it feels like they think that it, the free speech should be an ornament in your house, right? Like that thing, that thing that your parents or your grandparents have from the old country that they put there because it's important that everybody see it, but that we never use, you know, like, and, uh, and that's something that was just fascinating to me because I think that argument also exists in the credo and that it poses a moral question that we need to, you know, another moral puzzle that we need to sort of like disentangle, which is like, given the fact that in fact, the state does, you know, do a great deal for you and for your community, right? Like, is there a way, right? Like, is there, is there really a sort of like a spectrum of things that you can't do to it? And in fact, and so I try to sort of like, uh, to figure this out in the paper by saying that like, well, 
this is sort of a situation where like if there is the limits of that the you know the clarifying what's on that spectrum in terms of acceptable and unacceptable behavior it just can't be left in the hands of the state like that's not something because like it just it doesn't make any sense to do this right like if the limits of acceptable criticism or behavior are always in the hands of that you know impersonal sort of like non-human kind of like sometimes machine right it's just not we're, it, we're not going to end up in a very good place right like i do think that it's possible that there are unacceptable ways to behave towards the united states government i don't think that whatever you know that what kaepernick and rapinoe were doing existed outside the boundaries of the acceptable at all like but it does uh and this is a question that I've also seen you grapple with on the internet. Like, I'm sorry if this makes it sound weird, but like that is, you know, like states are not persons. Like they don't, the US government, and I say this in the piece, right? Like the US government doesn't have feelings or, or an identity or like anything that like, but it does, it's a collection of people with that, right? Like in institutions and they do contribute, you know, they, there's a significant amount of, of good and good things that are that is put forward by those machines, those collections of humans that work together. And it seems to me that it does imply that there are unacceptable ways of behaving towards it. I don't think that it's verbal criticism. I think that those unacceptable ways of, of behaving towards it more belong to the categories of actions that would prevent them from doing that actual good, right? Like, in the, and so, and that's a thing that I think that we could rightly identify and they say like, well, look, you know, like you're behaving in a way that you're, you're just like, you're, you're preventing the state to, to do what actual, what little good it does, you know, or what a lot of good it does. This is an acceptable way of behaving towards it. Like it has a real human cost. Like when it comes to sort of like, you know, largely conceptual criticism about things that we already mostly all knew about. Like, it's just like when it was like the plight of African-Americans in the context of football, I think that was fine. You know, like, obviously, I, but, but it does, you know, it does, I was talking about moral variables that I want to be part of the conversation, right? It does introduce that other moral variable, which is like, it's quite possible that there is an unacceptable way of behaving towards your government, and your country, and we already have some sort of standard of this, like treason, right? Like, but we don't have a more, you know, like us, uh, we don't have an equivalent for, you know, just like regular civil society or that is not a crime, right? Like treason is the highest possible crime, right? But we don't have a notion of this that is, uh, I want to say like non-military or civil, right? Or, and it, maybe it would do us good to have one perhaps, right? Like, because we could, it would help us navigate those moments where we try to really, you know, like to really hash out what kind of behavior or speech really does exist outside of the boundaries of the acceptable. If that, again, if, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, it does. And, and interestingly, like it, it, it's funny to see like a sort of, there's a bit of an overlap between, not like there's a similarity between the right and the left. So I wrote this piece a while ago called The Untenable Politics of Trauma. And I, I was talking about how in like leftist spaces, if you don't adequately like perform your trauma or like have enough uh, oppressed identities, then like people don't want to hear what you have to say. So yeah. like essentially you have to like write a weepy college admissions. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> and 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 you know what I'm thinking of is, is it's kind of similar with with the case of Kaepernick, where it's like, oh, like you're so privileged. Why yeah. are you saying all this stuff? And obviously, it's different because with him, like we know the, the status of his like material privilege. Whereas, like my argument was more like, stop asking people to share their private trauma. Yeah. But but I I do think that you know that's something fascinating. And and another thing is is yeah, like the more the way um what I think of now is like there's no like you said there's there's only like a sort of very strong legal punishment when it comes to actually controlling how you behave towards your state like there's only you know there's treason I think there's also some people wanted to like outlaw flag burning in some places um but yeah there's no just like like, are you basically proposing like a more like a social norm? Maybe I really. So this is sort of an idea that just sort of like it, it gravitates, you know, it just it goes around the paper. And it's something that I have to say, like, it just I'm articulating this as we're having this conversation. Uh, and I really I don't know. Right. The So in social circles, we have that kind of mechanism with shaming. Right. Like and then so. If you're in a community, you do something that exists outside the bounds of the acceptable, you know, like shame works for us in this way. It's a terrible emotion to feel. And it's something that we don't inflict, or at least I, I would hope, at least I try not to the inflict it, you know, like uh, without good cause on the people around us, right? Like if I say to my brother or someone around me that they should be ashamed of themselves, you know, like it's not for something stupid, like misbuttering your toast or like, and uh and so like, but we, when it comes and, but that's for behavior between humans, right? Like, and when it comes to, you know, human to institution behavior, we don't have a, a standard like this. And it's not like, you know, like the department of labor can turn around and like, and shame you or like, and, or do anything like this, but it, it could be interesting to develop a theory of, of that kind of, to sort of like, to, um, to allow us to make sense, you know, like morally of these difficult <clears throat> situations where on the one hand, you want to acknowledge, you know, like the positive and the, uh, the debt that I maintain is real, right? And the fact that there is some like very warranted criticism, right? Like that can come from you, even if, uh, even if you, uh, even if you are benefiting from some goods, you know, like, and, I just don't have a good model to uh, to help us to guide our reflection with that at this juncture. I hope that I will eventually, but right now I unfortunately very anticlimactically again I I don't. I feel that I spend like most of my life as a scholar, you know, like trying to identify these moral problems. And people ask me like, "What do we do?" And my answer is, "I don't know." And the, but the <laughs> truth is, I, I don't like. And but. Yeah. Uh, but it would be interesting, I think, to sort of like take this tool. And here's one other thing that I think that has come out of our conversation, that mm -hmm. I think that this kind of tool could help us, uh, you know, it could really help us sort of like move forward with, is that like one thing, a pattern that I've noticed in the conversation we've had today is that like these kinds of issues, they lead to a lot of situations where we observe very strange bedfellows, right? Like momentary allies of people that have, not a lot in common, except they're sort of like their attachment to one cause. Like I, and I'm going to go back to my example of black metal, right? Like I love going to black metal shows. I really, I want to see more of them. 
And sometimes my desire to see more of them makes me, you know, like it, it puts me in some places with some people that I definitely don't want to be associated with. Right. Like, and, or the discussions of migration, right? Like there are people like myself to some degree, right? Like who very much like I love Quebec. I've lived here for most of my life. I'm very attached to the place for many reasons. And I, and I think that there's a lot here that's worth being celebrated mm-hmm. and a lot there here that's also worthy of criticism. But when you, you know, you voice these things in spaces where there are other Quebecers, right? Like then you know, like you have, you always end up with a group of like, kind of like with people that are very cringe about how Quebec they are. And, (laughs) and it's like, and it's difficult and it's annoying and sometimes embarrassing to be along with them. And I don't want to be anymore as myself. That's a personal thing that I'm telling you, but like, but maybe if we thought about this with more nuance, right? Like we could allow, there could be a place, right? Where we could, uh, where we could have a thing where like this, Congregate, we, we would no longer need to be, you know, like to, uh, to be uh, um, the right share with, <laughs> with those unlikely allies, because like we'd be able to have like a well-defined moral position with like clear boundaries that where we could, we would identify the cause, but like real, you know, like moral sort of like sets of guidelines that would allow these alliances that often end up, nothing ever good comes from them. Like the people, you know, like they, the, you end up, you know, like tainted by your alliance with some people that have these like, like problematic views. You don't want to be with them. Eventually something almost always goes wrong and it's almost impossible to cooperate or coordinate with them because you don't have the same idea of what's acceptable. Like, and so when that happens, then eventually what suffers is the advancement of that thing that you really care about. Like, and, um, and so maybe if we had this set of moral tools, right. That I wish we had, but I don't have yet, like, then we could just, it would allow us to sort of like undo, right. These, these ties that bind us with those fellow travelers that we really don't want to be in the same train car with, you know, like, and I really, I hope it does. But again, I have to say, I don't, I don't have them. I'm only wishing that I did. Yeah. And honestly, like the older I, I get um, and the more like time I spend in political discourse, like the more I'm kind of like the, the less averse I am to, I don't know. I don't want to say like, I'm, you know, down to be like bedfellows with like a literal Nazi, but like, <laughs> but I, I think that, you know, politics is about working with people who you don't necessarily see eye to eye with yeah. on everything. And like, I think part of political maturity is being like, okay, well, look, like we both don't agree on this, but we might agree on this and maybe we can work together on that. Um, and I, I feel like, you know, because I, I feel like when you first get into political discourse, especially like you're probably around like 18, 19, you're a moral absolutist about everything yeah. and, like, <laughs> and everything's just really heated and whatever. And, you know, I think it is really valuable to talk to. So I like, it, it's always good. I think it's just like, it whets your appetite. It, it um, provokes your imagination and that's what matters. You know, it gets us like creatively thinking. Um, um, that's that's what, where the value is in my opinion. Yeah, I do agree that the, uh, 
there's like a lot of value there, but like one thing, and I, I'm not saying that you do this, but your conversation about like being young and a moral absolutist reminded me of my time at McGill, which was a long time ago, but it's one the McGill thing. What? <laughs> it's yeah, the McGill the, factor. I remember those early sort of like, I almost always, and before I was at McGill, I went to the liberal arts college at Concordia. And there we had a version of, uh, we, you know, like we would obviously were like, you know, much like early late teens, early 20 people were like read a lot of great books, were always together. And so like we were generally as a group insufferable, absolutely impossible to <laughs> to stand. And but like and I remember so many conversations that we have and like for some reason for the longest time, right? Our conclusion was always that the world needed more of us. Like we're like, oh maybe like the real problem is that not even like not enough people are reading Plato and Foucault, but like we're just like we're a couple public libraries and a good program away from like solving the world's problems with like discipline, <laughs> like a fresh copy of the Republic. And this is something that I've come to realize is and like, well, when you're young, it's like naive and whatever, but like when you become seriously invested in this entangling, the moral ins and outs of politics, it's just completely stupid. And like the, and one thing that I don't, and like people always sort of expect me today as a professor to always have this answer, right? They're like, so the solution is like more education. And my answer is like, no, no, it, it isn't. I mean, it would, I, it's, education is great. And like, I'm definitely a big fan of it. And I would love it if, if someone wants to read Plato, I'm never going to say no. Like I would absolutely good thing. However, right. There's a real need, I think, to sort of like, and I think this is something that Turkler Ixixel is doing like wonderfully as sort of like, we can articulate these moral issues clearly. We can absolutely do this in a manner, in a way that is accessible for everybody. And the discourse is not something that like, it doesn't exist solely in my credo paper. And in fact, most of the work is to make it exist outside of that, right? Like I want my friends to sort of like have these conversations with me and to think about how they're managed their own identities, right? Like as intrinsic moral goods and interact with others and something like this. And I think that the, the work that really sort of like needs to be done is like, is the, the, the thinking is something that happens, I think very well in universities, but the rest of this is political, right? Like we can have those conversations with each other. And I, and I wish that we had them more because like we could, we could really sort of like develop, you know, a set. We could exist in a place where we have the toolkit that's necessary for us to really engage in productive dialogue. And I really don't see like a lot of that uh, on the internet. I don't see a lot of that in like in my life often, right? But I used to the cry all the time. I would be in the classroom and like, and everybody, when I spoke, it makes sense to everybody. We understood each other. And then I would go to a bonfire and my friends, you know, like you know, 10 kilometers away from where I live currently and try to replicate that same argument. And it just like, it never, it's completely impossible, right? There's no porosity between the two worlds, right? Like, and a big part of the problem here, I think is one of accessibility and I think that's why I hate that that piece is now sort of like it exists. It has its existence is so deeply intertwined with the credo, which I love. But like, I wish it, it existed by itself because like the immigration bit, I think is I, I like that piece. It's clear it can be understood by anybody. And the credo bit is just obscuring the other point, which which I want to make, which is like moral, you know, cultural 
identities are like intrinsic moral goods and it's okay to think about them as such. We just need to have like discussions about how to preserve them while also paying attention to freedom and your right to leave, right? Like, and, and this is what I think. And I wish again, that like I was a person that was able to sort of like do that, but it's possible. Like it, it is. And, uh, and a lot of the ways I think in which we're going to do that is by striving daily to be clearer. Like, and if we do, then we can avoid those traps where like people use vocabularies as, as power tools against us all the time or certain rituals or mimics or litanies, right? That acts as like purity tests. Like they obscure the real conversations that we need to be having with each other in order to define those boundaries, to, to be able to sort of like set out the rules of the game clearly and then move on politically and have those discussions, right? Like, and, uh, and, and right now I just don't see that being true. Like, and I think even if you, the credo piece, like when my conservative friends read it, they accuse me of being a liberal. And when my liberal friends read it, they accuse me of being a conservative. Like, and this is now that this is like, this is because I failed both of their tests, right? Like when, with that writing, like I, and so nobody wants me like anymore in their ideological groups. Like, and I'm okay with this. Like, I but, feel you. That's what I go through every day. So, so like, I'm and, like both a commie <laughs> and a crypto fascist or whatever people yeah, want to, yeah. you know. But that's just people are gonna talk crap. <laughs> I yeah. So and I I purposefully stay out of certain Twitter circles or try not to use certain vocabulary to avoid that kind of that kind of like attention because it's just I don't it's not productive and like quite frankly I find it like super upsetting so I just like I try not to like otherwise but in but in my life I can you know like I think and this is something that is not in the paper but is in Plato that I think is very important and that I say all the time is that like one thing that's one of the fundamental insights i spend this entire conversation saying i want to move away from plato and i always go back to it but like the one of the great insights of the republic i think or socratic philosophy in general is that like these people are friends you know like they talk to each other all the time but they're best buds like and this is something that is like always so overlooked in the corpus in general not by everybody but by a lot of people and like and i think that like there's like something important there that's left unsaid is that like one of the reasons why they make so much progress, assuming I know it's a narrative and it's invented, but like, is that like, they can also, they always come at each other from a point where the, they assume good faith from their interlocutor, you know, like, and so, and the internet is not that place, but that bonfire with my friends is that place, you know, like that, the kitchen table with my girlfriend where I'm going to, you know, go have dinner and like, you know, move on with my life shortly is that place, you know, like, and we can take advantage of those spaces where good faith is the de facto setting of, you know, it exists before the conversation, it's assumed to be constant. Like those are the places I think that we have to concentrate our intellectual efforts and our desire to grow and not those places where it's not that, which is basically anywhere else. You know, like there's a reason Crito and Socrates were friends. Crito accepts Socrates' decision and his argument and he wants to hear him out because they are friends. And it's a really important bit, I think, that like some Strassens have paid a lot of attention about to it a long time ago. They made it weird. And like, and so nobody <laughs> like thinks about that anymore. But I do think that they were onto something. And that was like super important, 
you know, I just, I want to say on the record, I consider myself to be a bit of a Straussian. I don't think I'm cool enough for them. I wish that I was in their club. I don't think they want me, but I, I think, I think of myself as an honorary one. I know <laughs> quite a bit, just in case this ends up on the internet, I just don't want them to think I'm, I'm dissing them. This is a community, but uh, it was all kind of a joke, but kind of not <laughs> like so. No, I totally, like, I, I totally get what you're saying. And I think like a lot of times, like me personally, I have, a hard time with political labels generally because I'm like I want to be able to change my mind um and I definitely think that like you know calling someone through like an extreme label is just a way of dismissing them like when I published that liberal currents piece on democracy um you know the, the comments range from like this is like liberal nonsense to this is stalinist authoritarianism to like you know anything so i think yeah like good faith is is the best starting place oh yeah for sure it's essential and like it doesn't it doesn't exist at all i think especially on the internet but like and I, I don't know if it maybe like I'm longing for a time that never existed. Like, I don't know if the internet yeah. made us like this, but like, it just doesn't, it's just like no longer the case, but like, but when it is, we can make like some, some real intellectual progress, you know, like, which is, I think that there's like one of the reasons why those college experiences are so formative to us is because like, when you go to college, you make a decision to sort of like come to these places from a place where you already agree that you have something to learn and you assume that the person in front of you is like, you know, genuinely, honestly committed to teaching you that thing as best they could. And like, and so those environments, and then like you graduate from it and you find that environment virtually nowhere else. Like, unless you're like lucky to have friends who are like this, like, or teachers that you stay in contact with or the ability to go back to conferences, but it's essentially like it and it never, it, it very difficult to replicate outside of the university. Like, and and like, and so people just like move on, right? And then they, they get to those places and like, and immediately it's just like super, it's like, it's aggressive. And like, quite frankly, I also think that there's just a fair amount of people that I don't think really, I don't think that the puzzle is what matters to them. It's what matters to me, but I do think, and this is like just my two bit theory about, uh, and it's worth absolutely nothing, but I will say it anyways, is that like, one thing I've observed is that like, there's like a genuine craving for moral certitude. Like, and I like, I observe this all the time around me and on the internet and like, and I, in myself, like I want to know, like I would love, you know how much I want them to be morally certain? Like a lot is the answer, like a, a great deal. Like, and like there is a genuine desire and it's just, and when you see something that is obviously bad, like, and that you can, it doesn't require a lot of effort for you to identify that thing as bad, like racism, for example, or oppression, or grisly murder, you know, like, there's a genuine desire to just sort of like latch onto it, and you bring it as close to you as possible, and then you have that tool, and you're like, you apply to everywhere, you know, like, and it's, and I don't even think it's a power thing. I think it's just like a genuine craving for moral certitude. And like, and now I think what we observed today is that like, there's a lot of these things, some like very palatable, easily just like, you know, acceptable truth about how it's, you know, how we shouldn't or should 
treat people and on the basis of what and like and it's just like a giant swarm of people just like latching onto these things and now when it's the only lens that you have to evaluate every moral claim then it just like becomes disastrous right like i saw your tweet the other day about um about like palestinians like passing off as white and whatever and like my first thought was like how did that person even think that this was like a relevant paradigm yeah well, that, like, yeah no i know so, this is exactly what happens right like you want you find easily digestible acceptable moral truth that is that makes sense and is like on a basic level you, you know like correct and then you take that and you're like all right those are my moral glasses now i'm putting it like it just goes straight to my eyes and i'm just going to see everything this way you know like mm-hmm. and and like and i think that this comes from like a genuine craving for moral certitude like and not having it is a terrible place i spend the last hour 15 minutes telling you that i don't know anything about the problems that i'm trying to solve and it's unfortunately true right like but like but i mean and i understand that it's not a comfortable place to live in like and i and so i see where the impulse to do the other thing comes from but you just end up you just you can't even in the end you can't even diagnose the problems right you just like see you just look around everything with those lenses right and if you find another one right you'll just latch on to this and you'll just like move on morally just like having this like giant moral cudgel that you just like approach every puzzle with and in the end it's just we're just not going to do a lot just not going to figure a lot of things out i think yeah absolutely no i i definitely like i concur i <laughs> we we are coming up on time um but Thank you so much for coming on. And, You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And tell us where, like, where people can find you. Plug something if you want. Actually, the, yeah, uh, I have a website. I've done actually two other interviews. They're in French, though, uh, on some papers that I wrote um, uh, with my friend Gabriel Monet. He has a podcast called uh, "It's a Campanini." It's a great podcast with like a lot of good stuff. Um, that and with like and I've t- spoken to him twice so uh, and the links are on my website uh, and otherwise uh, people can find me actually uh, I'm not a very online person I like outside of a few tweets but I did write a book recently called Machiavelli's Platonic Problems uh, that is out and it has my thoughts about Machiavellian Platonism in it uh, it's not as much as it's not as apropos to this interview as the other things but that is that would be the if I had to do any promotion of anything which I think is where you were pushing me I think that would be it my book's out and I I liked it when I wrote it so if you want to look at it that would, that would be me. all right well everybody check out the book I'll, I'll link it all in the uh, description and once again thank you Guillaume for coming on this has been very stimulating and has left me with lots to think about so thank you so much <laughs> all have right a great, have a great evening see you, everyone Bye.